Thanks, Henry. I, I love the fact that you said the more smashed you got, the more interesting and intellectual I appear. <laughs> I hope a lot of so you have already had some wine. Um, I'm going to read for about 15 minutes, so about 10 or 11 poems, and then there'll be a chance for more wine, more mingling, and more buying books if you'd like to. Um, I'm going to start with the first poem in the book. And I'd read somewhere that the universe apparently is expanding at a rapid rate of knots. And none of the experts know quite what's going to happen to it. It could completely disperse, it could freeze, or it could rebound on itself and kind of collapse. And everything they said was so gloomy and horrible. But being a keen motorcyclist, I associate speed with exhilaration. So this poem came out of that. Slide rule. The universe is running away with itself like a child on a red bike on Christmas Day. Somewhere the wrapping is still being opened. The present gives itself again and again. And the child hurtles at perfect speed across town towards nothing. Her parents are already looking at the clock, saying how late it is getting, how the darkness comes so much sooner. It is only a matter of time, they are saying, before she will land awkwardly in an original position, sucking in broken concrete and teeth. Meanwhile, the child on a red bike is running away with herself, like the universe on Christmas Day. In this next poem, I've been reading the blog of, of a um, Russian astronaut, and I was struck by how wonderful they said it was, of course, but also how dissociating they said the whole experience was. And when they returned to Earth, it was almost like coming back from a war. This one's called Cosmonaut. To know I am in quarantine and not to be touched. That the world cannot taint me, it pains me. On the other side of the glass, my family waits. I wanted only to see the world distant, a simple light in the sky, to see the earth rise. I had not considered it would feel like an amputation. Meanings rise and stream from me, like sunsets. Silence deepens our goodbye. I cannot discern any last trace of your voice, with all the worlds that are between us. And this next poem is in the voice of a young girl in occupied France um, in World War II. She's got a German officer stationed in her house, and she refuses to speak to him but not speaking to him becomes its own kind of language. France, 1941. My mouth will not open for the soldier, seated in my father's chair. He knows now and inclines his head in polite salute, indifferent as a cat. I will my bones not to react, reflect. As the impulse travels through my senses, I quash it. I am skilled in the texture of silence. But at night, he eases Chopin into the air, lets the quiet in the music carry. He taps his pipe and cocks his head to listen. In the stillness of my room, I hold my breath. All the meaning I will not give forms in the air, like lengthened notes, a gift. I was, as um, Henry said, I was resident in the Science Museum's Vein Centre for a couple of years. Um, the way it would work is that they would give me a topic to write about, and I would go 
know, and go away and research <laughs> it and try and come up with something. And the first topic they gave me was emotional contagion. Everyone knows what that is. Um, so I went away and I googled it, and it's that phenomenon where if you go into a room and you're happy, you lift the mood of everyone in the room. And if you go into a room and you're really glum, then everybody gets a downer. And I was thinking about, during the 80s, I don't know if you remember, they tested the four-minute warning for nuclear war quite a lot. And it was incredibly eerie. And I was thinking, if you'd actually been through a war, how much more eerie it would be. And also fear, of course, is the most contagious emotion I can think of. So this one's called The Four-Minute War. The four-minute warning is over. It was a test. The birds are gone. The grass grows towards the sun. The snow is not ashes from the blast. It was a test. For four minutes, my parents stood, shaking. My father's hand jerked towards my mother's breast. She turned away towards the siren. My parents and I were shaken. It was the war come back to claim them. Ice blood stopped their veins. No thoughts. Simply the shrieking sound and waiting for the blast, metal mashing into blood. And then it stopped. The four-minute warning was over. I breathed again, forgot my fraction of their fear. It was a test. For me, the four-minute warning stays over. I'm going to read a couple of poems about growing up in Norfolk now. Um, as Henry said, I'm a local girl. I'm from Swaffham originally. Um, I'm not sure how many great poets come out of Swaffham, but I'm hoping it's a lot of And some, some of my family and friends here will recognise some of the places, obviously, because um, they go to them as well. Um, when I was growing up, we used to travel from Swaffham to the wilds of Hopton-on-Sea um, to stay in a caravan a lot of years. And it seemed like the ends of the earth to me, even though it was only about an hour away. And I absolutely loved it there. So this one's called Hopton-on-Sea. When I can clearly see the stars, I aim, true as a laser beam, into space, and rebound a child in your arms, shirking sleep, confident that I will be carried, from the silver dollar cabaret to the cradle of the caravan. The smell of the gas cooker warms us, more than its see-through blue. We sit on our beds to eat, form cocktail crisps and card games, punctuate the rain. The salt of sea and crackers coats my lips like doughnut sugar. The sand works my skin, smoothing, smoothing. The chevroned stainless steel steps, removable, lead my jelly shoes to a world of bare, open skies. And this next one is, I guess, about how you reach an age where your parents can no longer fix things for you, however much they'd like to. Old tricks. As if he can teach her to swim again, in that numbing pool on the Norfolk coast, with brother and sister dive-bombing, while he patiently pulls her forward, gripping hands. First, both hers are gloved by his. Her body lifts as he tiptoes back, taking her with him. Then his loosen, retreat, coast around her unclosing fists. A rare kiss of flesh becomes the only anchor as his upturned palms glide beneath hers. A 
first experience of flight, buoyed up, surviving in two directions at once. Finally, his presence drifts, leaving her, knuckles tensing, fists ready to close and dive, testing her new weight on the opening palm of the water. The florist. The florist tends her children like flowers, shapes them with a knife, murmurs love when no one listens, digs their roots and upends them when the spring takes her. At night she listens to their sleeping and dreams of forests full of wild gladioli, wood sorrel, sundew, cotton grass, celandines, grappling towards sun. In love's usefulness, her children nurture herbs, learn to seize the small and pleasant bitterness of thyme, shock of mint, nestling breath of rosemary. She helps them turn the soil, spread the sand like seeds, scatter wishes for a sturdy crop. Distant as a sunflower, she turns towards them by degrees. Circus Pony. Each evening after school you met, like lovers, <coughs> you angled offerings through the tired wire fence. She accepted as the air accepts. Among the traffic fumes and concrete, her heavy eyes and warm saluting breath became your fireside. Every night you dreamed her in the spotlight, all small girls carried on her back prettily tramping the ring, high kicking over flames, to gasps and applause, and for a finale, leaping into darkness, away from the crowds, the beatings. And when you ran away at last, north to the gleaming fens, you took a husband and a newborn to be safe. Routines followed, years lost like old flames, chosen and not chosen became pathways. Fences were your tightrope. And when the circus came, you took your daughter to the fence to see the ponies waiting, wanting her to sense that you had stood daily by a tired wire fence, calming the soft nose of a pony, patient, headstrong, poised to bolt. Williamson is my married name, and I was very, very fond of my maiden name, which was Camish, which is quite unusual. So hi to the Camishes who are here tonight. <laughs> I was very, very proud of the fact that it was just us and my granddad who were in the phone book. And it took me a while to get used to my married name. Um, but I read that there's a Williamson County in America, and reading about it, it sounded so wonderful. It really helped me warm to my new name. So this one's called Williamson County Gloves. My lover sends me cowboy gloves, bought in a county named for me. The leather is unbroken, musky as stallion's flanks. I trace the smooth edge of each finger, lay them by me at night, become a rolling, low, black land, guarded out west by limestone hills, swathed in prairie grasses, somewhere grain and cotton prosper, delicate but fulsome blousy in Atlantic breezes. <coughs> My dreams range with the candour I lack when awake. I lick the leather, 
watch the wet darkness linger. I became a parent myself fairly recently, you can probably tell by the bags under my eyes. Um, and anyone that's ever taken a pregnancy test, obviously talking to a certain half of the audience here, um, <laughs> you know in that moment that you hold it in your hand just before you take it, it's a really big time because it could go either way and you've no idea. At that time you could either be pregnant or not pregnant. And it made me think, obviously as it makes everyone think, of Schrodinger's cat in a box, the famous thought experiment. <laughs> so, so two theoretical physicists, that there's a cat in a box, and until you open the box, you don't know whether the cat is dead or alive. So two of the theoretical physicists, at that point in time, the cat is both dead and alive. And I used to find myself delaying the point of actually taking the test, sort of just hoping that it would be positive. So this one's called Schrodinger's Pregnancy Test. <laughs> For her, theoretical physics is a bird soaring next to a plane. From her pressurised berth, she glimpses movement rising out of reach. All it takes is a broad-nosed line in a window for it to land, bang, on her heart. And I'll finish with the final poem in the book. Um, I was asked by the Science Museum to write a poem about the Northern Lights, and I've always wanted to see the Northern Lights, so that's something I, I hope to do one day. And despite having seen this fantastic 3D footage at the Science Museum, I felt a bit of a fraud trying to write about something that I hadn't seen. So I ended up writing a poem about how much I wanted to see them, and it also became a poem about writing for me. Aurora. I am waiting for aberrations of light for quiet curves to arc and flutter, to break into form. For the skiffle of static to announce shifting centres of green, violet, white, blue, colour as its own pure note, a condensity composition. For contours to shape the charged air, now a backlit mountain, now a man emerging from his own electric shadow. For guttering light to veil the moon and stars, unveil them. While every poem ever written about the moon rises before me, I wait here in the dark with my eyes wide open. Thank you.